Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America. We live in Israel. And we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode, we'll host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Hey, everybody out there in podcast land. This is Dan and Benny coming at you with the Juanced podcast. It is Tuesday night here in Israel at uh, 9 p.m., and I think it's around 1 p.m., where our guest is, or 2 p.m. if I'm, if, uh, no, New York, 7, no. so 2 p.m. Uh, on the East Coast. It is, uh, I, I think for Dan, the end of a very, very long weekend. Uh, Dan, t- tell, tell our guests where uh, you've been. Went on vacation in uh, northern Israel, so uh, because we couldn't fly abroad, we were supposed to be in the States. Uh, we decided to go up to the north with literally the rest of the country. I think everybody was there, packed into the same campground, but um, we have a beautiful country here, and I think uh, we don't appreciate it enough. So I'm glad we got to do that. I'm glad that you got out to do that. And it was, it was relaxing because you were with the three of your kids, and then like your friends were with all of their kids. And We camped out with one of my close friends who's a professional chef. He focuses on charcuterie and smoked meats, and he cooked for us the entire weekend. That's amazing. It is amazing. So uh, without further ado, why don't you tell us about uh, our guest today? So uh, we are truly honored to have... Our following guest, uh, the impressive, fascinating, and I think I'm going to say badass, Abigail Pogrevin. Abby mm-hmm. is an award-winning author, journalist, and a former Emmy-nominated producer for her work with Ed Bradley and Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes, work with Charlie Rose and Bill Moyers on PBS. She asked me not to read the entire bio, but there's so much good stuff here that I'm just, I'm picking out a lot of good stuff yeah, here. Just go, go for it, man. Her most recent book, My Jewish Year, 18 Holidays, One Wondering Jew is a finalist uh, for a National Jewish Book Award. She also wrote her first book, Stars of David, Prominent Jews Talk About Being Jewish, and we all know how much Jews love talk about being Jewish. Love it. Uh, where she interviewed 62 prominent Jewish Americans, including RBG and Steven Spielberg. Do you have to see the notorious RBG now? I haven't seen it yet. I okay. am behind on my pop culture. Uh, she also wrote a book about being an identical twin, one in the same uh, where she gets into the scientific, psychological, and emotional aspects of being an identical twin. And Ghost wrote part of Al Gore's best-selling Inconvenient Truth. I didn't know ghostwriters were allowed to say they did that. We'll get into that also. Her articles regularly feature in some of the leading journalistic publications in the U.S., Jewish and otherwise. Uh, Abby's an active leader in the American, specifically New York Jewish community, uh, where she has an interview series where I'm getting quite envious. She hosts some of the biggest names in literature, journalism, culture, and politics. People like Malcolm Gladwell, Madeline Albright, Samantha Power, Nicholas Kristoff, and others. She served as the president of one of the largest and most important reform congregations in the U.S., Central Synagogue. And I think I'm going to leave the least impressive, uh, or maybe most impressive part of this. Uh, she served as the national director of Jewish outreach for the Mike Bloomberg presidential campaign. This one. This one. This one. Where he ran for president. 
And a lot of us here were uh, very curious and even possibly hopeful that he might have done something with that. Without further ado, Abigail Pogrebin, thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan. Thank you. We are honored to hear that. So what are you up to these days? What am I up to these days? What is anybody up to these days? Spending a lot of time on Zoom. (laughs) And, uh, you know, each new cycle feels like another year. But I'm lucky enough to have been kind of in that semi- self-isolation with my uh, grown kids. Uh, We were empty nesters, but we're not anymore. The the birds have come back to the nest. I have a 21 and a 20 junior year of college and the other who had just graduated a year before. So they are kind of doing their either schoolwork or their regular work from our house and everybody's on their uh, laptops all day long. But we, you know, cook dinner together and clean up the house together and have a lot more kind of intense conversations than I expected to be having with my children at this time um, because of obviously a a very terrifying scourge that none of us expected. Um, So so I was saying that, you know, even though I would never wish this pandemic on any of us, it has had its, you know, kind of unexpected blessings in the sense that we're together as a family. And just as a writer, um, you know, it's the kind of profession where you can write from wherever you are. And I also do interviewing, as you mentioned, I interview public figures um, and I'm able to do that on Zoom. In fact, some of them have been more well attended than they would have been in person. So um, including the women of Schtissel, watch that. That was one of the best attended kind of Zoom interviews that I've done. But the, the campaign, as you know, ended in March, literally after Super Tuesday was that March 4th, I, I packed up my office and then basically the pandemic was a week later, everyone was was running for the hills. So it's kind of yeah. like you had a vacation after all that hard work. Well, I, I hate to admit it, but it was, it, you know, I did need a little bit of a break because I had been going on no sleep since November. <laughs> you got one. <laughs> I, I got to ask, what is it like working on a presidential campaign? You know, I'd never done it before. And, you know, it's probably something you should do in your 20s <laughs> in terms of just the energy level. But it was incredible. I mean, and this is going to sound kind of a little utopian, but just to have the diversity that was on that campaign and overnight, like we grew from 20 to 200, you know, in a matter of weeks, literally. And obviously Bloomberg had the resources to make that happen. Um, but the physical plant kind of came to life um, before our eyes. We were suddenly, we were in an open space, what they call the bullpen in the old New York Times offices, you know, no cubicles, no, no offices at all. Although there were places you could go have a private meeting, but none of us had walls. So I was on the coalition's team sitting across from the Latinx person and next to the person in charge of African-American outreach. And then right next to me was Asian-American outreach. And the fact that we all had to kind of, you know, make a village and make a campaign overnight um, and reflect someone that we believed in, but also be trying to tell, to chart a course that was, I think, a lot more centrist than has been the conversation. Um, it was it was very powerful. It was very challenging, and you know I would again recommend that if you if you ever get the opportunity, there's nothing like it. Um, but you got you, know, you need a lot of coffee or a Red Bull or whatever. But what are the out, what are the hours like? Like what time did you show up in the morning? What time did you leave? It's a great question because as my husband would say, I never put my phone down, and I didn't realize that we would all be getting our own. Bloomberg phone and Bloomberg laptop, which was basically, according to the law, you couldn't be sending, um, you know, campaign emails or communication on on non-campaign devices, which meant that I always had both in both hands, 
trying to kind of, you know, when you're doing outreach, you basically, especially for Bloomberg is all about data, you have to keep kind of proving how many Jews you're reaching if you're the director of Jewish outreach. So it wasn't just like, I kind of thought at the beginning, I'm just going to talk to a lot of Jews. <laughs> you had to kind of quantify your outreach. And so there was a lot of also keeping track of those communications. But in terms of the hours, I, I kind of was never off duty. Um, but I would basically, we had an 8 o'clock, 8.30 meeting, the coalition team in the morning every, every day. I was certainly up at 6.30 already on email. And then I often didn't leave the office until 8 or 9. And then we were on the road, you know, because obviously right. Jews are everywhere in the country. In particular, I was focused on the cities with the most of our population. You just had to kind of go nonstop to try to reach people, having house meetings, having kind of larger, almost rally-like meetings. So it was pretty much nonstop, but it was kind of ours to invent. Nobody said, Abby, this is how to do Jewish outreach. Go right. for it. They kind of were like, this is up to you. Did it, did it ever advance to a stage where people in, in the campaign were thinking about what positions they might want if he were to, you know, become president? You mean like if we got jobs in the, in the new the administration? Correct. Yeah. I mean, amazing because you know and maybe it is that jews aren't optimists as much as we're passionate it could have never occurred to me that we would actually i, I believe that he could win but i never saw myself as part of that, that story i felt like i had this job to do that i actually had never done before and was only doing because of the sui generis moment of the fact that i didn't feel like we'd ever been here before quite this way with this urgency and, and frankly, I couldn't just stand idly by before, you know, journalists are supposed to be observers. So I was sort of making a decision not to be kind of anonymous anymore and not, and not to be impartial. I was going to be very partial because I was screaming at CNN every day. <laughs> and I felt, frankly, kind of moved as a Jew. I mean, that may sound mushy, but it was true. I mean, we all know that that, that Pirkei vote, it is not your obligation to complete the work, but neither can you desist from right. it. I felt like, you know, Abby, you're, you, you have to do the work here. You can't just rail at, at the condition of our country right now or the condition of the rhetoric and the division, and particularly in the Jewish community. I feel like um, this president has not just divided Americans, but divided Jews and played to our fissures in a way that I think was really uh, not just alarming, but damaging for a very small people. Did you know uh, Mike Bloomberg before the campaign? I mean, you're, you're a well-known I had, work. Interestingly uh, enough, I had, I had met Mike Bloomberg when I interviewed him for a very short-lived publication called Brill's Content, which no one will remember, but it was actually a great magazine that covered the media. And it was unfortunate enough to start right before 9-11 and, you know, pretty much everything that had just begun sort of went belly up after 9-11. But for Bill's content, um, I interviewed him about Bloomberg News. And so we had a very extended interview then. And so I spent a lot of time with him for that and time with his colleagues and at his organization. But he wouldn't know me to bump into me on the street uh, before I got this job. So how did um, I was brought in by someone how did they find you? Who reached out to you? Uh, yeah, someone who knows him very well knew me. And um, I think what they thought, I'm, I'm, I do humility here because I'm not a campaign person and not sort of a Jewish professional in that way. Sure. What I think they appreciated about my um, kind of Jewish background journalistically is that part of what I've done is ask a lot of questions and give a lot of speeches to Jews all over the country. 
And in the process, that means I have a lot of connections with rabbis in every state, with JCCs, federations, right. um, not-for-profits. You know, I, I have a lot of tentacles in, I think, more places than the average New York Jew because I'm, first of all, interested in different takes on our tradition and our teaching, but also I know that the wisdom is everywhere. And I've been lucky enough to speak about my books. At, so many, many people don't realize there's sort of a Jewish book circuit. Right. And when you're on it, you eat a lot of salmon at these luncheons and, and you get to speak for 20 <laughs> minutes. So you meet, a lot of, you meet a lot of Jews everywhere, which is pretty, which, which is really a, a privilege. You know, I was watching um, obviously the entire uh, primary from here and, and almost involved in it in a couple of ways. Uh, you even reached out to me at some point to try to help out uh, here on the ground in Israel with the, the Bloomberg campaign. Um, and I had a somewhat of a connection to Buttigieg and so kind of a home, he's, uh, he was the mayor of South Bend where I grew up and we still have some, some connections. So we, we had, uh, you know, I was rooting for a couple of uh, people here. Um, but I, I gotta ask, um, one of the things, you know, kind of watching this half an outsider, half, half an American, but who hasn't lived in the States for a long time, when Trump was coming into, um, you know, the campaign and then he came into office, I was really hoping, you know, for the sake of America and for the sake of the world, really, that um, part of his campaign line that said, look at me, I was a successful businessman, I'll get it done. Now, we know a lot of that's just not true. I mean, a lot of his claims to be a successful businessman turned out to be, you know, cons. Um, whereas Bloomberg really is a successful businessman on a much larger scale. And, you know, I was never a New York insider, but it seems to me he was also a pretty successful mayor of the most important city in the world. Why would someone who's so successful, both in government and in business, and who has this empire, and who's pushing what seemed to be a centrist line where most Americans really are in that centrist space, why do you think the campaign didn't take off? Why do you think mm. it, didn't, it didn't catch fire? You know, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, but, you know, as far as yeah. you can see now. Well, first, I, it's a great question, and I, this is going to sound defensive, and I don't mean it to be. We were taking off. It was kind of amazing. Like, everything that had been laid out by Kevin Sheikey, the campaign director, in terms of the strategy, skipping the first four states, and, you know, making people in the country feel like they had a voice early on, because they usually they have to wait for their primary, and they don't, can't get involved until it's essentially their turn. All of that was playing out exactly as it was mapped out to be and including those first two primaries if you remember iowa new hampshire yeah it was going our way and you i would just say on the road sorry yeah say go ahead damn you were gonna, oh, I'm gonna let you speak since it's your podcast <laughs> no, no, i was just gonna say i mean bloomberg got on the board he was uh yeah he, he managed to get into the first debates he was on the board right he was on the board and 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 more than that when we were on the road the response was quite extraordinary and it was because as much as people might have liked biden every poll said that he couldn't win. This was, again, pre-North Carolina, where the narrative was, we, we have to turn this around. We cannot have another four years, and we need someone who can win. Who, who's the winner here? And literally, the New York Times in November of this past fall uh, did a poll at the same time that Bloomberg did a poll internally. And it came up with the same exact result, which is that with all of the candidates who are currently in the field, none of them were going to beat Donald Trump in the swing states that were going to decide the election. That's pretty decisive. And so there were plenty of observers and those who are engaged, particularly Jewishly, who said, you know, that's untenable. And here's a guy who has been exactly, as you said, unbelievably effective. He actually has a track record 
um, on all of the things that we care about, I think as Jews, and we're certainly not monolithic, so we care about a lot of things, but particularly in terms of just the narrative of the spike in anti-Semitism, defense of Israel that is robust and un unflagging, and progressive values. I mean, Mike was um, out front on gun control, out front on climate, way ahead of people on that. Even women's rights, reproductive rights, kind of amazing. Um, and equal, equal um, opportunity for those who have not had fair education and healthcare and all of that. I think where we frankly began to falter was that debate stage. And that we just have to acknowledge that that was something that none of us anticipated would be as, as much of a hurdle as it was. I think we can we can dissect all day all day long what went wrong there, but that's when kind of the the um, the ship the the tectonic plate started to turn, and we had a harder story to tell. Is it hard when you end a campaign? I mean, number one is it, it must be very hard when when a campaign ends. Like all of a sudden, there's all this energy and there's all this momentum, and then one day it's like, okay, we're turning the lights off, packing up the office, taking down the banners, right? But is it is it hard? I guess this is a two-part question. Is it hard? And then second, is it hard at that place to move on and back another candidate and, mm. and back Joe Biden as that other candidate in this race? These are great questions. And I don't say that to, bl to blow smoke because both were entirely true. First, it was like leaving a family, you know, that had kind of become a family overnight and so it almost sounds kind of unrealistic how close we were, how fast, but it's such an intense crucible that you are just bonded. You know, you're bonded in the unlikeliness of this enterprise. I mean, how many people said nobody's ever done it this way? Nobody's ever, you know, kind of defied the blueprint the way that this campaign is with the resources that this campaign has. And it was a really diverse, energized, kind of like, you know, loving place, like, we were working our butts off, but we were kind of, you know, we were an army and we were all believers. So the fact that literally overnight, you are just as you described, taking those posters down. And frankly, we had to kind of get out fast because there's all rules about, you know, you can't kind of keep phones anymore. You can't, you have to figure out your laptops, you have to do your expenses. Um, and, you know, we had mishpucha for Mike um, and Mike in Hebrew. And, you know, we had these buttons and T-shirts and posters and like who that's like an artifact now. I can sell those to you for a lot of money. In fact, they're really a collector's <laughs> item. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it's just sad. You know, that all the swag and stuff. It was just sad. Like you're, you're here and then it's over. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of like, yeah, going right to the next guy or woman. But in this case, Biden. It, it wasn't just a natural thing because you know, you're, you're again, faith is faith. And you, it's not that I don't believe in Joe and particularly now, um, but this is pre COVID and you just feel like, you know, your guy is now not in this and you kind of have to get the energy up again to say, do I have this in me to do it all over again and to start all over again? And frankly, I don't think that a lot of us were, called um, to join that team right away. So maybe if they had been sort of urging us to kind of keep going, but I don't think there was a lot of the outreach and I don't blame them. You know, they had their own, they had their own family. So do they have a Jewish outreach uh, figure? They do now. Yeah. They do now. Um, and I, you know, full disclosure, I, I did get some feelers out as to whether I would consider applying for the job. No one offered me the job, but a really great guy is doing it. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think they're doing it differently as well because he's a different candidate. So it's different to be working for a Jewish candidate when you're doing Jewish outreach. When you're looking at the slate of uh, candidates back when it was a full field, okay, and let's put Bloomberg aside, let's put your personal connection aside. Um, who, who did you like the most um, as far as your own values and then from a strategic standpoint as far as, as taking on Trump? Who, who did you think would be the most fitting? In the, in the end, was it Biden or was it one of the other candidates? Uh, Pre-Mike, it was, it was Buttigieg. And it's so interesting that you said that. I just kind of fell in love with the guy early on. I'd never heard anyone speak like that. And he's it's brilliant. not just... He's brilliant. Yeah, it's not just his brilliance. It's also his thoughtfulness, the fact that he seemed to actually listen and consider before answering, the fact that his answers were not always the same, the fact that he had a kind of humility while also having a certain ambition. And um, so it wasn't just his story. I haven't heard somebody really be able to field any inquiry as deftly and as thoroughly. And I just, maybe it's also just the anti, you know, antithesis of Trump, um, but having someone who reads and cares and learns and keeps learning and admits when he doesn't know um, and admits, you know, any kind of self-deprecation, <laughs> um, it was all refreshing. And I had the, the luck of seeing him in person and I listened to a bunch of his interviews also. And I just thought there's, I've never seen someone like him. And so I think he had his own stumbles and his own hurdles. We all know what they are, but he was, he was the one I felt like uh, in a way could go the distance and shock everybody. I, I uh, had the pleasure um, when he was on his, his trip to Israel. This was before he announced. So I was asked to give him and a, a small group of mayors a private briefing on U.S.-Israel relations. When, when was this? This was right before they announced um, his interest. Uh, so the, the stage right before he ran. So this is like early 20, end of 2018? 2018, I think it was. And so I got to sit with him for a couple hours and talk about U.S.-Israel relations in the Middle East. And, you know, on Middle East, we were going toe-to-toe because he's, he knows the Middle East. He was uh, an intelligence officer. He spent time here. He speaks a little bit of other languages. Um, and, and, yeah, he was, like you just said, he was really thoughtful. Uh, I got a sense he was authentic. I got a sense he, he you, know, uh, you know, I'm sure like anyone running for office, he, he's rehearsing a little bit. He knows his points. But, but there was an authenticity there. Um, a lot of us like to say kind of a Midwestern shucks authenticity that uh, I think a lot of Americans can connect to. Definitely. And I was asked here on Israeli radio a few times about him. And, and I think that's, you know, the combination of his intellect um, and his ambition. But with that humility that you talk about, um, you know, that I'd, I'd really like to see where he goes. Um, if Biden wins, you know, I can see him in the UN. I can see him even as secretary of state or something like that. And then who knows down the road, I think he could be, you know, hopefully, I think he's the you know, yeah. right person to do something in America right now. Interesting stuff. It's 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 funny when you just said about his, you know, Midwestern Oshucks mentality in in sales, and I'm in sales. You know, there's there's like a, a phrase which is which is that Midwest works. You know, New York people that works in New York it doesn't work so well once that person's out. You know, in Kansas right. City trying to sell. Midwest works anywhere. Yeah, because it's real. Uh, and it's and, real. It's, and he was that for in in, in many ways. And and um, yeah, we're not going to get to see that this t- this time around. So, so what are you working on nowadays? Back to writing, back to uh, producing good uh, articles and books? Yeah, well, thanks for asking. I'm working on something that is probably going to sound like a very 
tiny project, which is conversations with rabbis about God. <laughs> Super tiny. It's just a small, <laughs> small little enterprise, but it's been, you know, pretty revelatory to have the chance to uh, essentially sit down, although I'm doing this on, on the phone or on Zoom, with a clergy of, of varying denominations, American clergy, just asking them the questions that I think a lot of people ask or wrestle with when it comes to the divine um, in Judaism. And, and so there's 18 conversations with 18 different rabbis. Each one tackles kind of one question. Does God hear us? Does God punish us? Um, what does God think of us? Does God um, exist? Does God exist? Is that what is your question? Yeah, is I that love a question? That's, that is absolutely a question. Um, it's interesting. I just had um, a, a really fascinating interview with Rabbi Lipsker, Shalom Lipsker. I don't know if you know, he's the Bal Harbor rabbi of, it's called The Shul uh, in Bal Harbor, um, which is in Miami. It's, it's massive, orthodox shul. And he was the first person to get COVID and be public about it, um, at least in, in that world. And, and he was very public about it and actually is credited with sort of saving his congregation because he disclosed it so early and thankfully survived it. Um, someone who was born in 1946. So he was in that, that um, kind of imperiled population. But, you know, his, his argument was exactly that, not argument. What he posited for God's existence was so fascinating. So I'll leave you hanging, but I hope you guys will tune in. It's, um, these are written pieces. These are can not you, podcasts. Can you give and us some of the, the names of the, of the rabbis? Yes, absolutely. And it's for, I should have mentioned it's for the forward, which, okay. as you know, is 150. 50 year old, uh, formerly Yiddish, entirely Yiddish now, yeah. both. Um, and so uh, some really interesting stuff right now on the forward too. They're doing a lot yeah. of interesting series that I've been uh, following on COVID and other things. Exactly. There's a new editor, a relatively new Jody Redoran, who, you know, was the bureau chief for the New York times in Jerusalem. She's fantastic and smart. And I think really fair and balanced and very rigorous. Um, so some of the rabbis that are in this series so far um, are, as I mentioned, Rabbi Shalom Lipsker, um, Ari Lam, whom some of you may know is uh, uh, the uh, YU president's uh, grandson. Um, my rabbi, Angela Bookdahl from Central Synagogues, the first Asian American rabbi, wonderful, incredible voice. Um, Rachel Timoner is a reform rabbi um, in uh, Brooklyn Heights, who's very strong, outspoken on social justice. Uh, Yitz Greenberg, I'm sure many of you remember, who wrote The Jewish Way and is, you know, the teacher of teachers living in Israel, um, as he does part of the year. Um, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a, a good roster. Of hey, can you give David us, Wolfe uh, from LA. Some of you may know David Wolfe. Sure. Yeah, he's fascinating. Can you give us a few teases of uh, some of the, your big um, insights or maybe... Uh, some of your big takeaways from these conversations? Sounds yeah, fascinating. I, mean, I think, you know, one of the themes that has really emerged is this idea that, that God used to speak uh, directly to us, then spoke through prophets, and now doesn't speak directly at all. And so where do we hear God when we no longer have either the direct kind of language and communication or the intermediaries? And it's such a, a powerful idea to me that there's been an evolution of how kind of God's presence is felt and to realize that it might not be as literal as hearing God in the, in the ways that we see it in the Torah and say, well, I don't hear God's voice on Mount Sinai with the thunder and the lightning or the burning bush. Um, but maybe actually I'm, I'm hearing God in ways I, I'm actually missing. Okay. So that has been a very powerful through line. Another is just the idea of being partners with God, you know, almost to a rabbi, I keep hearing that, that, 
God didn't complete creation on purpose, that we are supposed to be God's partners, and that we have to kind of pay attention to figuring out what that role is. You don't just sit back and believe or not believe or pray um, or keep kosher. You actually have work to do. And I think that's a galvanizing idea. And it really orients us in a way that's not always conscious, but to me has been kind of put in high relief through these conversations. That's interesting. You said, you said uh, I'll paraphrase because I don't remember exactly how you said it, how we understand or how we right, how we view the evolution of how God talks to us. And it's a really interesting concept because, um, you know, that, that's our understanding of our relationship with God, right, um, from ancient texts through prophets. And now we don't have the prophets we have to relate to ancient texts. Um, did, did any of these rabbis, and I think it's fascinating that you went to a spectrum of rabbis, right, from, from across the American, at least, uh, spectrum, uh, it would be really fascinating to do a similar kind of project with rabbis from other parts of the world, Israeli rabbis. Um, did any of them surprise you? Did you get, you know, maybe an Orthodox rabbi who who took you where you didn't think an Orthodox rabbi would go or a more liberal rabbi who took you in a direction that you didn't think they would go? In? Yeah, great questions. I, and I think two spring to mind. And, and this is the first time I've ever talked about this series, actually. So We, so we get a scoop. <laughs> yeah, you're catching me very fresh in, in these answers. I don't have them. Uh, so I'll, I'll be just frank. Like I, I talked to Rabbi Lipsker most recently. He is the one from Bell Harbor Shul, Orthodox Shul, um, and in Miami. And I guess what surprised me, although maybe it shouldn't have, um, he grew up in a deep, I mean, he spent his first four years of his life in a DP camp. Mm. And his whole orientation, partly to the existence of God, is that Jews have survived. And you can't explain it any other way mm-hmm. that there is no reason we should be here. I get chills when I say it, you know, there is absolutely, you know, the, the odds, I don't have to tell you about the, our history of persecution, the litany of peoples that have tried to wipe us out. And the fact that we not only, these are his words, um, not verbatim, but essentially not only that we have endured, but we have thrived and succeeded. I mean, he uses those words. He says can only be explained by some kind of divine force or power that is not just out there, but within us. So that in some ways is radical to me because I almost feel like it's not politically correct to say that, you know, we're here because, because God is making sure of it. You know, that's, that's a problem. Maybe we're here because uh, we have a job, like you say, I mean, that's a Kabbalistic idea. What what you brought that we have a job to finish. Right. Um, and it's fascinating because even though it's a Kabbalistic idea, I was at least introduced to it at a reform summer camp. Um, so it's one of these ideas that I think Jews across the spectrum can connect with, at least of those Jews who believe, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, how, how did you, um, it's interesting you're approaching a project where you're kind of trying to bring Jews from the entire ideological and political and denominational spectrum into uh, into a project, and it sounds like you know, kind of the the kind of projects that you like doing. You know, from from what I know that you've written over the years, and I want to get into my Jewish year in a second um, because that's a it's a fascinating project in its own right. How how were you raised uh, Jewishly? You know, what was kind of your Jewish upbringing? Yeah, I will. I'll tell you like on one foot so that I don't bore your your listeners. But I just wanted to get back to the last part of your question about whether there was a reform rabbi who surprised me because I want oh, to make yeah. sure people that it's, it's really running the gamut. And this was um, a rabbi, Laura Geller, she's now emeritus um, uh, of, a, of a large reform congregation in Los Angeles. 
And the antithesis of it, of, of Lipsker, is that she's saying the word God gets in the way of God. And we should, we should think about using it less. That in a way, there are so many Jews who can't even engage the idea of God's presence because that word by itself is alienating or is a barrier. And I think that also is going to essentially kind of stir things up for from, some people. From the, from the perspective of people that are Jewish atheists that, that don't like the concept of God in, in, you know, as, as a part of the Jewish context or for people that politically have a problem because there's a, you know, it, it, it I don't know, somehow a political connotation. Well, just the political connotations that one has now in the, you know, in the, in the zeitgeist of like people that are God fearing and, and maybe they believe in God, but they don't want to call it that because they don't want to be somebody who's like a, you know, Bible toting person who, you know, that it somehow is identified with conservatism or, or, you exactly. know, I, exactly, Ben. I think that there's, there are connotations about God orienting your life and what kind of person that makes you that is a barrier. And then I also think there's what we keep hearing about the Old Testament God. I'm so tired of these cliches, but God as ruthless, God as a punisher, God as, you know, impatient and, you know, and God as sexist and God the king and all of these things that essentially are what many of these rabbis called pediatric ideas of God, frankly, they did use that word, but they're often kind of the default, like, oh, I can't, I can't, you know, a God in the sky telling us what to do. Right, I can't connect to that God. Or the old man with the beard and the, you know, controlling, right. Is it, is it somewhat? You have that kind of beard right now, Dan, just to be clear. It's not a white beard. You have that kind of beard right now, and I think (laughs) the listeners should know that. My prophetic beard, I mean, this is my Herzl beard. (laughs) You also can't see, but his hair is like totally slick back, like, like some sort oh, of a so group, long right now. I need like a Greek te- Taverna singer. Like Herzl that. Can I call Herzl you Stalos? I don't know if Herzl had a hair product. <laughs> he had a great beard, though. Um, no, what I wanted to say, though, is kind of just to play, I don't know if it's playing the devil's advocate, but just to, to say for a moment, like, are we really that post-Judaism that we've gotten to a place where we can't talk about God as a part of the Jewish context? That, that's a thing now? No, I, I, and, I, I, and I'm a person who, I mean, to give, I guess I haven't really talked about this with our listeners at all, but I'll get into it. You know, I, I struggle with the existence of God as a concept myself. I mean, all the time, I don't know, you know, I'm pretty agnostic about it. I want to, you know, I want to see proof and then, and the, and the burden of proof is very, very, very high for me to the point of like, I want God to appear in the room before me and be like, Hey, it's God. Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> that but, could still happen. <laughs> but I'm not turned off of Judaism because Judaism and again, I'm I'm separating between the concept of the Jewish people and Judaism being the faith of the Jewish people, where where for me it's like, you know, I, I Judaism is a, is a, is a faith. It's a religion of the Jewish people, and I understand that a part of that is 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 the belief in monotheism and the belief in in one God and the belief of you know, Hashem as as that God, and I don't know how much you can. You know, I you can definitely be a Jew and not believe in God, but I don't know if you can be, you know, uh, an adherent of Judaism without, without, uh, without God. Uh, or is, is it? This is a question. I mean, it's a bigger question. It's, I'd love to hear. Is it Judaism without God? I'd love to hear your take on this, Abby, because I mean, if I get where you're going with this, a lot of people in modern society, okay, um, people who do not call themselves religious but do maybe connect to the idea of a supreme power. And, and, and I think, you know, because of, of what you're saying, Benny, because of these maybe cultural, political connotations, you can't say, oh, I'm religious. I believe in capital G, God, right? The, the old man in the sky concept. But, but you do connect to some kind of higher power. 
So it's, it's interesting that there are rabbis, that there are, there are spiritual leaders looking for a way to do this without, I want to say it's lowering that initial barrier of entry to people who would be off put by this language, right? Am, am I getting this correctly? Exactly. And I think we're not acknowledging those barriers as honestly as we should. That's my feeling because, you know, what people often do is just kind of bag the whole thing. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to, first of all, I'm not entitled to sit at this table. I think there's a lot of that. You know, I don't have the language. I don't have the vocabulary. I don't know how to pray. I don't know the Hebrew, whatever, whatever it is that is kind of the, the currency. They don't feel like they have it. And so they kind of bag it. And often it's because educated people don't want to feel dumb and they don't want to feel ill-equipped. And that was part of also my drive to do this is let's, I hate the word empowerment, but we, we all have earned a seat at this table. And so let's have some of the harder, more honest conversation about what's in the way. Um, that's what I'm asking some of these rabbis too. And what, sometimes what I'm asking each of them is when you encounter someone who doesn't believe or who kind of lives without God or would say they live without God in their lives, what do you think they're missing? You know, like I, I not that I want them to sell God, but you, you obviously have decided that it's enriching and important and, and maybe it's not even a question in your life. I would imagine, you know, some would say it wasn't a decision. This is, I feel God from the moment I, even my rabbi said that she's always felt connected, even as a child, others it's taken, I think a little more work, but I just wonder, you know, what, what do they say to the Jew? And frankly, there are a lot of them who kind of just say, God doesn't do it for me. I don't have, I don't have that, that even that pull to investigate this. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping um, I've got a book, like a research book that I've been working on for the past, oh God, too, too long, year more. It's in editing land right now, but hopefully it'll be out soon. And I'm looking at a lot of the way that, that rabbis and synagogues and Jewish organizations in the U.S., are approaching these kinds of, um, uh, for lack of a better term, but just to save time here, millennials, right? And, and people who are culturally kind of on the margins of the Jewish society. And one shul that I ran across in uh, San Francisco is, is taking this head on and saying, um, you know, they give you a, a, a book or like a pamphlet, right? When you get in, um, uh, and I had a talk with the rabbi, Noah Kushner, if you're familiar with me. Yeah, talking about the kitchen. The kitchen. Yeah. And, you know, they give you this deck of cards that could be deal breakers, right? So when you walk in, um, what if I don't believe in God? What if I don't connect to prayer? What if I can't read Hebrew? And, and it, it fascinates me. And I think it's so important that there are people that are actively trying to say, um, you're still welcome here. You're still part of the Jewish community. You know, Amichai in New York, you probably know him. Um, Lab, who I also interviewed for this, uh, for this book. Uh, in, the, in the very title of his shul, he says, God optional. Right. And so it's, I don't know where any of these projects are going, but I'm fascinated um, that there are Jews, Jewish leaders actively trying to figure it out. And, and clearly among the, you know, five, six, seven million American Jews, depending on how you want to count, there are people asking these questions. And I know in Israel, by the way, they're asking these same questions in Hebrew. You have a lot of Jews here who call themselves secular. Like, like I think you're going with this, right? Asking these questions. What if I don't believe in God? How do I still connect? Um, so it's, it's really important to have these places. Is this process a reflection of something that you're going through and that you want to discover, or are you playing the reporter here and trying to help others? That's a great question and, and kind of goes to my Jewish therapy and, and your last, your, your question that I interrupted, which is sort of my Jewish bio. 
I think the, the quick answer is yes. Anything that I do journalistically is sort of a backdoor way of exploring something that maybe I'm afraid to more personally otherwise. Um, first of all, I, I love the journalistic kind of um, license that it gives you to ask, to look for teachers and, and ask them questions that maybe I wouldn't have had the courage to otherwise. And when you, when you wear your journalistic hat, or as you know, your scholar's hat, you know, you're, you're, it kind of gives you entree. I mean, lucky enough to sort of have this laboratory of people I can call up and say, you know, can we, can we talk about God loving us? Are you good with that today? <laughs> uh, whether God loves us, can you help me through that? Um, and have a rich conversation for an hour. Um, but I would say for myself, you know, I grew up without a formal Jewish education in a very Jewish home. And my mother was raised with a lot of Jewish education. So she was essentially a, an observant Jew um, who was raised as a kind of a yeshiva boy because her, her father didn't have one. Um, and a very rare bat mitzvah for her time. And she had this seminal moment, some know, because my, my mother, who's a writer, wrote about it in a book called Deborah Golda and Me, which is a touchstone book for many of her generation. She's now 80, 81 now. Um, but she describes this moment when her mother died. My mother was 15 years old. And mom was not allowed to say Kaddish for her mother because she was female. Sure. And so they literally brought in a couple strangers uh, to, to, to complete the minion. And despite her knowledge, despite her mastery of that liturgy, she wasn't allowed to actually mourn um, in what Judaism requires of that moment. That was so uh, dispiriting and, and alienating for her. And frankly, it's a conversation, it's, it's an experience that I heard from RBG. It was amazing when I interviewed uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg for my first book, Stars of David. I couldn't believe someone who I don't know who's sitting there in her Supreme Court office chambers is telling me that when she was 17, she had exactly the same experience. Her mother died. She wasn't allowed to say Kaddish. She turned her back for a time. So it just shows you there was a generation that kind of said, I thought this was my place. And now you're telling me I'm on the sidelines. Um, and it was more pivotal than I think many of us can relate to now that we've grown up with women rabbis and women leaders and, and women say, and feminist satyrs. You know, this was a time where at a certain point, kind of where when the rubber meets the road, you don't count. Um, so my mother turned her back for a time. And that's why I didn't go to Hebrew school. I didn't get the Hebrew. I didn't have a bat mitzvah. And then when I got to Yale, I was kind of beginning to feel what I think happens to a lot of Jews, like annoyed by my ignorance. And so I started to fill in the blanks. I took Hebrew, I took Hebrew, I took Jewish literature and it kind of, I, I caught the bug. And then I had my first child, however many years later when I got married, I was 27. I saw my little Ben in, a, in that oversized kippah being passed to the moil, you know, from generation to generation to the moil and thought to myself, I'm not gonna be able to explain this to him. Was this before like, or after your husband passed out? <laughs> I was the one passing out. To be clear, I was the one in tears, you know, hormonal and tears. It's a hard one. Uh, but, you know, you realize it's sort of one of those moments of like, do you know how to explain yeah. what you're passing on? Uh, and that was really the beginning of my beginning, my Jewish study. Um, and I started to study Torah and I became a bat mitzvah at age 40. And I started to audit classes at JTS and Mahon Hadar. Some of you may know a seminar uh, yeah. a seminar. And I kind of got addicted to Jewish learning, which is anyone who knows who's done it is, is you, you just, once you dip a toe, it's very hard to stop swimming. So, so, so sorry. a second, I want to just follow yeah, up on this. It's funny what you said, because it's, um, I went through something very similar and, and I did grow up with Hebrew school and I did grow up in a, a reformed Jewish house, but I got to college, just like you said, and, and I had a summer camp experience and, um, I, and I spent some time in Israel. And then I said to myself, um, am I going to be able to pass this on? 
what am I going to be able to pass on? Am I going to be able to answer these questions? And that was the start of my deeper Jewish journey, my more active Jewish journey. And, um, and I started exploring and learning a lot more. Um, and it totally changed my life. So I know one of the things that came out of your experience is, is the book, My Jewish Year. And I'd love to get into that in a second. But real quick, I want to take a step back. You mentioned your mother. And for a lot of our listeners uh, who didn't get the full bio, your mother's a bit of a star. Can you just give us a... Yeah. So her name is Letty Cotton Pogrubin, and she co-founded Ms. Magazine, which hopefully some of your listeners remember in 1973. Um, maybe it was uh, 1972, 1973 was the first issue with Gloria Steinem. There were five women who were the co-founders, obviously a game changer, and they met with sure. incredible distance, but really changed the landscape. And she also co-created Free to Be You and Me with Marlo Thomas, which is uh, an album and then a TV show that I happen to be on at seven years old, just in case you haven't watched it, I can send you the YouTube clip. Not, and we're going to pick it up after this. Yeah, we're definitely, because that was a high point at seven years old. That really was downhill since that interview with Marlo Thomas. But that was an album that, again, was ahead of its time in terms of, you know, non-sexist child rearing and the idea that you could actually raise a girl or a boy without expectations of pink or blue or trucks or dolls and and also a sense of what your parents could be. Those, you know, that, the, again, we're, we're so used to this stuff now. It's like a ho-hum, but... Um, but this, they were the pioneers. And, and then my mom, you know, who came back to, to Jewish practice very strongly and an egalitarian form of it, like she's actually a pretty old fashioned kind of Jew, if you want to be truth be told. She's a balabusta. She's a great Jewish cook. She sets a mean Seder table. And, and she was actually the cantor at our makeshift synagogue um, on Fire Island for years. She was the only one who knew the liturgy well enough to do it. But she's the one who co-created the feminist theater where women had been left out of that, you know, Haggadah story for, for generations and spent most of Seder's in the kitchen getting, you know, preparing the 5,000 courses that have to come yeah. out. Um, so she really does, she's a much more nuanced kind of uh, Jewish story than people realize. Um, but is also, I think, more of a left lefty Jew than I am. Um, she was director of Peace Now in America for a while. And we have plenty of arguments about Israel, which we don't have to get into here. Um, but it's part of what's been so interesting to grow up with her um, is just the fact that, you know, every, every Jew in a way has to find their own path. And there was nothing, as much as she gave me Jewish pride and the most amazing Hanukkah parties, um, she didn't give me the, 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 the scaffolding, I would say, of yeah. Jewish learning that I ultimately kind of had to learn for myself. And we're living in an amazing time now where it's so accessible, uh, especially in New York, but, but even online, right? I mean, the things that you can access online now, Hadar, you mentioned Hadar, you mentioned, you know, I've connected with them a little bit. I also interviewed them for, for this upcoming book. Um, the things that you can access now online, and, and it, it, it's, it's kind of going in this direction where it's breaking boundaries, first of all, physical boundaries, because you can connect anywhere, anytime. You know, it can be live, it can be recorded. Um, and it's breaking denominational boundaries, right? And Hadar was one of the first to do that. It sounds like, if anything, this upbringing, uh, which sounds like an amazing uh, upbringing, gave you this understanding that you can break boundaries, right? You can you can recreate, rewrite the rules of the game. You don't have to play by the rules of the game that um, that exist. Um, and, and so, I, I want to take this into, um, from my understanding, your book, My Jewish Year which is a part of your personal journey, but uh, I, I wasn't able to get a copy of the book, but I read a lot of every review I could find about it. And it sounds fascinating where, where you go through every 
Jewish holiday, not just the major ones, right? All, uh, was it 18 or 20 Jewish holidays? And you discover them from every angle that you can and explore them. Uh, tell us a little bit about, about this project. Yeah, I mean, I was determined to kind of take the deep dive as as thoroughly journalistically as I could, first of all. Like, I didn't want this to feel surface, superficial. I wanted to approach it as I would any story, which is to, to research in my anal way, um, read everything I could. And obviously, it's bottomless in Jewish learning, but to you know, to ask for the best books, to kind of immerse myself in, in sermons and in, and in stories and in, and in literature and scholarship um, before each holiday began. So in, in anticipation, preparation, then to pick the place I was going to observe it and the interview and the rabbi I was going to interview about it. And, and then to try to really be in it, which is, you know, hard when you're kind of trying to be both an observer and an experiencer and, and a pilgrim through all these. And, you know, these holidays are like a clown car, particularly in the fall, where I barely saw my family. <laughs> you know, once Alul started, it's, you know, it's a, it's a marathon, uh, you know, until basically until you get, you know, I would, I would even say to Hashanah Rabbah, you know, like a holiday I didn't even know existed. They come fast and furious, and I was determined to keep up. I was writing in real time for the forward at the time. So each, each holiday would, would come out right after I had experienced it. And then I took a real step back to write the book and deepened every holiday and added the scholarship and the interview material that I had to leave out. And, you know, it's incredible to, you know, there are orthodox people, plenty, who go through these every year without thinking by rote. But even the orthodox who read it said, you know, I haven't even stopped to think of what I'm saying and doing. And you made me kind of revisit the origins. Why do these holidays exist? A lot of people don't realize that some of these were created, you know, much more recently than, yeah. than they believe, you know, like, that rabbis. Example. Decided. Sorry, Dan. Like, like what? For example? Yeah. Like the, the rabbis, for example, decided that there should be a party after you finish the Torah reading cycle. Like that Simchat Torah is not, has not been there forever. It was something that was suddenly agreed to and created. And, and the same with, with even Yom HaShoah, that moment that we're going to, you know, it's, I call it a moment because it's one day a year for an unfathomable horror, which is the Holocaust. But there was so much debate as to where to put that holiday. And it was so interesting to kind of unpack and learn about those, you know, internal arguments about where to place a new holiday. Um, the fact that you could even create a new holiday in my parents' gener- in my parents' lifetime. Um, all of that was just an incredible ride. And again, I wanted it to be interdenominational. I know our teachers are everywhere. I didn't want it to be through one Jewish perspective. You know, it's funny you said uh, Yom HaShoah and where to place it. it. It's one of the debates here. Um, th- there's kind of a, an issue in Israeli society, for example, that the ultra-Orthodox don't observe Yom HaShoah or Yom HaZikaron for the soldiers. And if I recall, it has to do with the timing, right? That there are certain parts of the year where you're supposed to do these. And so it's not that, you know, uh, secular Israel thinks that they don't respect the holiday, but no, they're respecting it on their own time because there was a secular and a religious debate on where, you know, where well, this you is make a new holiday. And this is the nuance that's lost on, on the majority of uh, everyone, you know, everybody. Yeah. Like that's so, that, that's, that's, that happens to be true, but in, in, in the discourse that's so obscure yeah. that it's, it's not even... So what did this process change you um, as far as your observance? I, clearly, you gained a wealth of understanding. But did it, right. you now observe holidays that you didn't even know about or didn't care about before? Um, do you approach the Jewish calendar now in a different way? Yeah, I would say that I, it didn't turn me into an observant Jew. That wouldn't be accurate. 
But what it did do was make me, um, first of all, deepen and change the holidays I was already doing mm -hmm. in ways I can describe. And I, then the book describes, but also to frankly, you know, be a little braver about the holidays that I tried where I feel like a little bit of like a fish out of water. And, you know, one example, I mean, I did do all six fasts. That isn't something I'm rushing to do again. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize there were six. Uh, but but Simchat Torah, dancing with the Torah, you know, it's, it's, that's not something I would have been rushing to do at 10 o'clock at night on a weekday night. Um, and I just found it kind of revelatory to, to kind of celebrate with our scrolls in a way that was so accessible and so kind of primal. The fact that it feels like a kind of drunken wedding that everybody's invited to, um, that you're that you're chanting not Hebrew, you know, psalms or you know things that you need the the, the, the lyrics for, but the, these nigunim where you don't need words. That is very democratizing. You know, that's just one example of something that now I've incorporated. Yes, because I feel like I hadn't done it before, and as long as I have that single malt scotch that I learned we're supposed to have, or at least the orthodox, I'm emboldened oh, yeah. to dance with. Tomorrow. Um, it's, it's interesting to hear you say this and, and to actually hear you, you know, use the, the terminology you're using, like Nagoon and whatnot. I, I think of my mom who's in, in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, who, you know, her literacy of these things is, Hey mom, if you're listening to this, this is, I'm not meant, you know, meaning to offend anybody, but it's like, you know, she's listening to this. Uh, she's she's definitely listening. Fan. She's like, oh, my English. Uh, so she, you know, she, the, the, the ability to like know what a Nagoon is, she, she wouldn't know what that is. Um, do you feel in, in some way that you're, you know, I'll say it in a different way. Dan often likes to say that in Israel, we, because of the virtue of being in a Jewish state, we have the ability to be lazy Jews. You know, I can be Jewish through osmosis. I live in a Jewish you're society. You're not going to assimilate because it's, it's right. I'm going to assimilate to what more Jews and whatnot. Um, you have been through this amazing personal journey of like Jewish discovery in the American Jewish context. Do you think that that could have been done anywhere else, but, New York, because New York also kind of has that ability to allow a Jew to be a lazy Jew. And I don't mm -hmm. use that term in a derogatory mean. Exactly what you mean. Yeah. It's in the water. I mean, first of all, I do think it's why a lot of Jews I know are kind of, whether you use the word lazy or kind of complacent about, you know, I just, I am this because I've always been it. And, and we also kind of are friends with each other and moving together through the world. Like Jews find each other, right? They gravitate towards each other, not exclusively, but it's kind of where you land without realizing it. Um, you know, one of the things I think it's such a good point that you're making that I felt doing this book and it, and I felt it frankly, every time I've explored our tradition is that it, it is demanding. It takes a lot of work and it doesn't just get sprinkled on you like fa fairy dust. You know, one rabbi said that to me and I resisted it, but it was true. It's like people who say, I don't feel anything in synagogue. I don't, they, the prayer book doesn't do it for me. The Torah is alienating. Like, have you read it? Have you read it with a rabbi, with a great teacher? Have you talked about it with someone? Have you had a Havruta? That's a study partner. You know, there, there, and that's not a judgment. It's just that it's true that, we don't make it necessarily a cakewalk, but the dividends that it delivers are, I would argue, extraordinary, and they're surprising. Like, you don't anticipate where you suddenly see Torah in a book you're reading, or a poem, or a political speech, or a movie. Like, 
it's kind of everywhere or in a interpersonal relationship. You know, there's so much dysfunction in the Torah and you see it in your own life. And, and that's not to sound evangelical. It's like the texts are, have endured because they keep somehow giving us something. And don't you kind of want to investigate why? I, I, that, that's, that's the only challenge that I would make. And yet I feel when I've ever visited Israel, so envious of all of you who just, you, you kind of have your bona fides in a way that we don't. We are considered, I think, a little bit of, you know, the, the pseudo real Jew, like especially reformed Jews where there's so much stereotype about Judaism light. And I'm not defensive about that. I, I, I'm proud of my synagogue. I know how much Hebrew we're reading too. But, you know, those, those stereotypes are there for a reason. And even rabbis I interviewed said it to my face. You know, they talked about assimilation and reform, rab- the reform congregations are, are, are part of that. We are guilty in their minds. We're culpable of the watering down. Um, that's a tough pill to swallow. Um, but there's many people within our own Jewish family who believe it. You're not doing real Judaism. And certainly <laughs> the chief rabbinate of Israel believes it. Um, and it was rhetoric when I was writing this book about how reformed Jews are akin to Holocaust deniers. That it's very hard to confront that stuff. But you were talking about nuance, Ben. Like, that's to me what keeps this alive. We shouldn't run from the nuance. We shouldn't run from the argument. We shouldn't run from the debate. We should be having them and just having them more honestly so that people aren't just dug in into where they are, where they've been. Right. And, and for me, it's, you know, that's part of what makes the Jewish people so amazing is the fact that we are this big, crazy family of people that, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily see eye to eye. We do have different, you know, uh, feelings about faith, about God, about, you know, this community's validity versus that community's validity. But I, I, I think that now we seem to be in such a polarized time that whereas maybe in the past, we could at the end of the day, all sit down and be comfortable in the fact that, you know, we're all Jews. That's a myth. That's that, a that may myth. be a myth. It may be a myth. We've never felt comfortable. With no, that. I mean, if you want to go back like never. 500 years. Never. You know, there have so? always been rifts. Oh, rifts, between, yes. But no, I, to the point where there were always Jews saying, we're the real Jews. You're not. We're doing it the right way. You're fakes. And, and, and sometimes to the point where there were splits, that one group went off and wasn't part of the Jewish people anymore. This is a romanticized telling that we tell ourselves that we all used to be one happy family until whatever, but it's not the case. So I, I wasn't exactly going to the one happy family place, but <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. Family. That's cool. No, I, what, what I was, what I was simply saying is that I think that nowadays because of the fact that people don't have the necessarily, I want to say the word education or the, literacy. Or the desire literacy, yeah. sure, the desire to sit down and say, okay, I disagree with this, but let me try to understand why I disagree with this. And let me, you know, my, or, or maybe I'll try to challenge myself and I'm open to the fact that I'll learn a little bit of something and it might change me. I think that people now are so much in their box and, and wanting to prove to one another that they're in their box, uh, whether it's in the social media atmosphere or whether it's in uh, their family or, or wherever they are, or maybe they're afraid to, to speak about, uh, you know, what they, what they feel and what they believe that that definitely plays into the discourse sure. about, about Judaism. And, and sometimes they don't have the toolkit to, you know, this is kind of the kind of stuff you're doing here seems so important because a lot of people just don't have the toolkit. They didn't have the upbringing, even the minimal upbringing to be able to approach this and say, okay, I get it. I don't agree with it. I get it. I take it in this direction. Right. I take it in that direction. Um, one of the things that I've, you know, that I've been encouraged by actually in, in studying American Jewry is these kinds of projects that are trying to give American Jews that basic sense of Jewish literacy 
and and seem to be succeeding. And I don't know, I don't know on what scale. I think it's the beginnings of something big, but it's not big yet. To strip it of the politics, to strip it of that polarization, and to say at least take the toolkit, right? Take the toolkit, and then we'll figure out where we're going from there. And I think that is is something that if we if we do go back to an older generation, and love to get your take on this. If we do go back to older generations, you know, Israelis in the 50s, right? My mom grew up here in, in the 50s and 60s in Israel, not as a religious Jew. Um, it's a secular, traditional Sephardic Jew. But, but talk to anyone from that period, and they weren't religious, but they knew Gemara. Yeah. They knew Tanakh. There was literacy. There was, there was a basic Jewish literacy. They knew the Jewish calendar. They knew what keeping kosher was. Maybe they didn't know the ins and outs, but they knew, they knew this thing. Um, it's something that previous generations had that we've lost, right? And you mentioned lazy Jew, which is something that I borrowed and I like to use a lot. Um, I, I would love for, on the one hand, for all of us to be able to be in societies where we could be lazy Jews, but we don't, especially in America, right? And you mentioned, Abby, you mentioned um, how reform congregations especially are dealing with assimilation. And there's a, there's a paradox here. There's, there's an irony in this challenge that American, non-Orthodox American Judaism has. Uh, and love to get your take on this, in that on the one hand, you can't approach Judaism anymore and say, you have to go to shul, you have to do this, you have to do that, so that you don't assimilate, because people don't hear that anymore. That people are sick of hearing that. You have to give them a product, you know, and, and I'm talking about Judaism as a product here, that has worth, that has value. Um, and if that product is engaging enough and has value, then they won't assimilate, right? Yeah. I mean, is that yeah. the biggest challenge of our time? It seems to have more urgency now, if anything. I do, but I think that, you know, there is um, there is a lot of kind of to, being dug into your silos without having a lot of substance. And there are people, granted, who have, you know, kind of done the heavy lifting of learning and will come out with an opinion that I still revile. <laughs> but at least it's sort of intellectually has heft. Um, and I don't even just mean intellectually sounds, it sounds elitist. I, I, as I mentioned, I think that understanding some of this takes some effort. I don't think you have to have a degree in it though. I think mean, that's, it's also really accessible and open to us. And as you say, particularly now mm-hmm. where you have so many resources, whether it's myjewishlearning.com, whether it's Safari, I mean, the fact sure, that you can yeah. now get the entire kind of, you know, Tanakh and commentary and all of it just at your fingertips. I mean, I'm, I have this podcast with a, an Orthodox rabbi, Dove Linzer. I started we, listening to it. Oh, I'm glad we sort of right. argue once a week. Thank you for 10 minutes about the Parsha. But, you know, I can do my deep, he know he's memorized the, 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 the Tanakh, but I have to, you know, do more preparation than he does. But like, it's all at my fingertips. And so that's what allows me to be calm about the fact that I know so, that there's so much I need to learn. And I, I, but I do think it's worth the, the elbow grease and the pro and I, and I say that not to advertise it or shame anyone who doesn't, but what I have little patience for, and I go to a lot of these Jewish conferences and a lot of these organizations that are espousing, you know, the fact that anti-Semitism is the narrative and that's why you should give money because they still want to kill us is to me, it's like, that can't be the sum total of your Judaism. And that's been said forever. The Holocaust is crucial. It can never be forgotten. You've got to defend Israel, anti-Semitism, right? All of it. But just the idea that we've had this spike, and particularly since 2016, where the ADL has, 
has quantified, um, you know, the fact that we are literally, we have had, they have more cases than they've ever in their, in their history of documenting antisemitism. It is at as worse. Like, yes, that should, or, that should focus our minds. I care about that. But what I find is this also becomes a crutch. It becomes the story that we are now telling about ourselves. And it's the reason why you shouldn't assimilate. It's the reason why you should marry another Jew. It's the reason why you should give money to the Jewish organization you care about. And I kind of am like, what about this tradition? How are we going to pass on something? We can't just pass on fear. We cannot. Exactly. And, and whether we have, I think we fail. I think that's a wonderful point. I think that's a really wonderful point. So where do you find yourself on this journey now? Where are you personally? And well, that's, I think, where I've gotten to God <laughs> is that, you know, after sort of taking a more intellectual approach, because I find that the more I learn, the more I start to kind of feel or connect with spiritually. But I had sort of been avoiding the, the spiritual in a way. Like I hadn't really engaged with the divine in Judaism in a deep way. And I think part of it is, is that feeling of, of almost sacrilege. Like, am I entitled to ask these questions about God? And would people feel bristle at the idea that I'm posing what I think are some fundamental, fairly fundamental ideas. And again, to the credit, to the credit of these rabbis, like pretty much almost, you know, other than like two people who, who cited some scheduling thing, everyone said yes. And it's a, it's a testament to who our teachers are, is that when you call upon them, and I would say this to anyone who's exploring, no, you can't take advantage of your rabbi's time, but to be able to say, can I talk to you about this idea because I'm struggling with it? Can you help me kind of understand what is, un, is, was is sort of purposefully un, un-understandable? You know, so many people talk about the infinite. What does that mean, you know? So many people say, we don't have vocabulary for God because you can't speak about God. And then where does that leave us, you know? Um, so if we are in, an, in a languageless place, I kind of wanted to find language around that. And that's, I think that's why I'm, I'm at this place. And the pandemic, frankly, has been, you know, it's almost like God sent me a sign because how many people have said, does God, is God have a hand in this? Like, where is God in this plague? Because not to blame God, but you, you know, for anyone who's a believer, it's hard to ignore God um, with something that has affected the entire earth. It's so funny you said that I, I went at the beginning of this, I thought I was doing okay. And I was like the rock in our house, like just trying Not this to, podcast. He's talking about COVID. But COVID, yeah. COVID. <laughs> just to be sure. I, I was, you know, I think I was furloughed from work in, in, in March. And I went a full month being like really good about everything in my house. And eventually I developed like some real severe anxiety uh, to the point where I actually went to a doctor and like had to try to get things straightened out. And he said to me, and this is like a doctor, this, this I think would be the difference between a doctor in Israel and a doctor in the States. And you can tell me what you think about this. But he looked at me and I, I, I really love my doctor. I've been going to him for years and years and years. And he's, he's like, look, I can prescribe some things to you that'll make you chemically you know, feel better, serotonin type stuff in the brain and, and you know, Lexapro, whatever it was. Or you, know, you have to try to find some order in this universe. You have to try to find something to hold on to. You have to try to find a higher power. And the reason that I don't have, a, and he's saying like he, and the reason that I don't you know, have, a, have a problem with this is that I'm, you know, because of my belief in, in a higher power, because of my belief in, in, you know, call it God, call it Buddha. He wasn't like trying to evangelize towards something. He was just saying, because of this, I don't have what you have right now because I felt, you know, I went through a crisis of faith earlier in my life 
I felt a physical click where, where something kind of, you know, got put together when I realized that there was something bigger than me in the universe. And I gave up the desire to be in control. And I, I know now that there is, I don't have to be in control of this and that I have faith that things will be okay. And all at once I was confronted by this. Okay. Holy shit. What do I do with this now? You know, do on the one hand, he's making a lot of sense. On the other hand, is this appropriate that I'm having a conversation, you know, about this with my doctor? Do I need to get a new doc? Do I get the new, you know, do I need a new doctor now because he's not going to treat me because he thinks I need to go to shul? Like, what's the situation going on? And, I, and I'm sure that like an American doctor would never it's, it's have It's only an Israel moment for sure. Like, Can I just say something about that? First of all, I so appreciate that your candor and so many of us have, are not being as honest about our, our dips and plunges during this time. But but it's that you are literally anticipating half of the conversations I've had with rabbis that are, that, that's what they're saying about this is forcing us to confront our lack of control. And particularly for New Yorkers, but for any Jews who like, all we've been taught is kind of agency and, you know, and enterprise and success and achievement and, and control. And this is, this is, is not just the antithesis of that, but it is, I think what they said to me that's challenging to me is that whatever happens to you and I could be sick and someone I love could be sick, you will find a different path if you have faith through it. That if you're someone who confronts the hardest thing with a belief in some higher power, it's not that you abdicate, but that you are going to have a very different peace and experience. And that to me has Kind of it's also very difficult, isn't it? Because you you hear your doctor say this on, on the one hand, and then again, I, you know, it's it's bizarre coming from a doctor that you know that's what he's prescribing. And on the other hand, it's like okay, now you're pres- I sometimes get medical advice from my rabbi. Yeah, so, okay, maybe that's even weirder. But like, okay, now you're prescribing God to me, but it's not like I can just go take the God pill. It's like you have to believe in it, which means that you have to believe in it like i don't know like you can't get on that path it's like i could go put myself in synagogue three times a day from here until you know 50 years from now if you don't believe you or don't you, believe or you could read a book on philosophy or you could right? read whatever you do like it's it's like saying to me okay i'm gonna tell you benny that the cure to your ailment is that you have to accept islam you have to become a muslim but that's not what he's saying he's saying you need to realize no, that not everything, not everything no, is in your I'm not talking about what he said. Not everything I'm is in your control. For me yeah. to be prescribed the medicine of give up control and find belief in something higher than yourself, whatever that might be, you can seek. You can go out there and go on a journey to try to find that for you. But sure. if, if you don't find it, or, or to say this another way, if you don't have that moment where it clicks for you, it doesn't click for you. But you got to try. You can't fake it. It has to be real in order to work. It has to be real, but even that act of trying. Try, sure, try. try. It's a journey. Absolutely it's not try. An instant thing. But it's it's not um, it's not just as easy as saying, okay, I'm going to go home now, and my doctor said that I should believe in this. And well, it's funny because so your is. problem though seemed to be psychosomatic more than anything, perhaps. And but I would just say, Ben, I would just my my only armchair addition to this is that I think one of the things that he was doing was asking you to even consider. You know, not to necessarily take the God pill, but to maybe open your mind to a different way of even sure. thinking about this. And that I think is hard enough to do. Like, that's why what your story is something I, I might want to use at some point with your permission, because sure. I feel like that that's where we get pushed 
in a way that, um, you know, we could have already decided is just an impossibility for us. And I might be in that camp, like as much as I try to change my thinking, but it is, I think it's the kind of challenge that is missing a lot. And it's, and it's definitely very, um, very true that this is the first crisis that we as a, you know, modern current world are facing where it really, especially for the Jewish community, it puts us into a place where it's almost like a crisis of faith because we've never really had to face, at least in my lifetime, some sort of an existential threat like, you know, Jews in the Holocaust had to deal with. It's not people an existential in threat. Come on. Ex- okay, yeah, existential might have been a very, very Sorry, difficult. Say, say that again. How is it not existential when life, when it's life and death? It's not life and are, death. Well, for you, it's, it's not. But, of course for me. But it so. could be. You could get sick tomorrow and be totally screwed because it's, you it's, happen to be one of those people that gets it really bad. It's disruptive. It's not the Holocaust. It's not, yes, no, it's not the Holocaust. When I say existential, I don't mean that humanity is going to cease to exist. I, I mean, like, you have a, you have a very... Uh, a, a very, very powerful sense of uncertainty that sure. everything is going to be okay for you. And that's something that, like Abby said, you know, when you go on this trajectory of growing up as a Jew in the States, at least for, for me in, you know, in the 90s, it was, you know, you're going to be, you, know, you have choices, you have options in front of you, and, and the world is growing, it's not contracting. And, and now we're in this place where it seems like things are going in the opposite direction. And that puts you into a place where you have to confront some serious questions about the nature of reality. And I would also just say it challenges the ideas that I think we hear a lot about, like B'Tselem Elohim, right? In the image of, we're all made in the image of God. That is almost to the point where it's on a Hallmark card for me. Like I almost don't hear it when I hear it. But this pandemic has changed that because there is this sense, because we are connected, you know, in a way that I don't think I fully fathomed until now. The idea that we can not just help each other by wearing masks as we interact in with strangers, but that we could actually make each other sick. I mean, to think about the power of interconnection. It's not just like we travel and we're connected on the internet. You know, it's that, it's that someone from another country can come and visit New York and has an obligation to me. And I have an obligation also to someone I see who might be in a population I don't pay enough attention to, the elderly, who is now, it is existential for them in a different way. I mean, it's just a sense of like, are we going to live these values with people we don't know? Not just your family. Like it's asking that, a certain kind of humanity um, with millions of people who are affected. I I think that's hard. So when you look at what's happening, that's a really interesting point. So when you look at what's happening, um, I think in America more than most places, you know, this debate about uh, that half the country is against wearing the mask, right? It's my right. It's my, th- where, how does that make you feel about the, the future of America, the present of America? I mean, how does, well, now I'm what does the look like after this? Yeah. I mean, I think that that division has been sown and encouraged more than it would have been there without Trump doing it. I think that if you had had a leader who stood up there and said, we are being tested and this is going to be one of those times in history that we're all going to say we stood together and defied the odds and we got through this and we're going to do one thing that's really inconvenient at the same time for a short amount of time. And then we're going to get across the, you know, the Red Sea. And that wasn't done. And instead, the opposite was done. And so it suddenly became there still would have been people who 
who said, I want to do this, it's my liberty. But I just think there was no call. There was no, I mean, I just read the Churchill book, which is amazing. I was going to say, I'm just Churchill here, right? Yeah, like, I, and I really never understood what Churchill did. I mean, you're asking people who are getting bombed every day to have the kind of fortitude. I would have been like, could you please just capitulate at this point? Because I don't want my kids to go to sleep, terrified that their roof is going to cave in and not wake up the next morning. And just what he asked of, of the Brit of the Brits at that time, and that they did it. You know, I mean, you see what what the reservoir, and I don't have to say for the Jewish people, the reservoir of fortitude and endurance, and and that just hasn't been asked of us, and it hasn't. I mean, it's been asked, but not in a way that is really cohesive um, as a leader who kind of leads. And there's been no Moses here. Let's put it that yeah. way. Um, as as you and, talk to, uh, sorry, go yeah. ahead, finish. No, I was just going to say in terms of the racial awakening as well in this country, like we've had a most upheaval that I have lived through in my lifetime in one summer, you know, or in a five month period. It's kind of unimaginable. And now we're going to the holidays. And I feel like these things about who will live and who will die. And like, you just didn't pay attention the way you're going to have to this year. Who will get another year? You know, who by fire, who by water, like that stuff's very real right now. Um, and I think in terms of justice, you know, I just read the Parsha, justice, justice, you know, tzedek, tzedek, all these things that have been kind of slogans, and I'm not saying we've minimized them, but we haven't really had to face, I think, the, as when they're as real as they can possibly be, yeah. or as reified as they've become this summer. So I think our sort of Jewish... That's fascinating. Yeah. That's really fascinating. As you talk to rabbis around the country and, and and you're, of course, prominent in your own community. How do you see congregations? How are they going to get through the high holidays during this time? What are some really innovative ways you're seeing? Um, and, and then I want to lead into that. Where do you see the American Jewish community with its institutional framework? Right. Where do you see that going post COVID? Yeah. Well, first, I've seen incredible innovation. And that's been both energizing and a relief to see that people can be creative even after we've leaned on the same kind of tropes for so long and they've been good tropes but you know what when the rubber meets the road I've said that uh, used that expression too many times you got to reinvent yourself um, I'm obviously a huge fan of, of my synagogue central synagogue it's got 2,500 families that now are spread apart we are not together and you know there's a waiting list we're, we're lucky enough to have a waiting list of 750 people families, I'm sorry, who want to, to be part of us, how do we maybe take an opportunity now to connect everybody? Um, we weren't able to physically um, absorb that many people, and we still can't for various life cycle reasons, and the clergy can only kind of administer pastor to so many. But maybe this is also telling us that if the tent wants to be bigger, we should let them in. And you know what, we've always wanted to, but it has been kind of, un, it has been unimaginable to have that many. But this is kind of a cry for more togetherness, not less. I would also just be harsh and say that for those synagogues, I mean, obviously Central is a very resourced place, well-resourced place, and others aren't. And I don't want small synagogues to fold. But I do think there are some kind of institutional um, habits and laziness, um, not necessarily just with synagogues, but with all kinds of Jewish organizations and non-Jewish organizations that are kind of having to up their game yeah, right now. Definitely. And that's not a bad thing. Like we have all coasted to a certain extent. We've all gone to the same donors every year and asked for the same amount or asked them to give more. And, you know, I feel like this year it's, it is a little bit of like 
you know, what are you going to be? How are you going to kind of be malleable enough, nimble enough, yeah. imaginative enough to rise to this moment? And if you're going to say it's business as usual and you're just waiting to ride it out till you get back, you're, you're not going to yeah. survive and you shouldn't. And you, Yeah, exactly. So, and you don't deserve to survive the moment. I, I wrote the um, part of what I do is at the Jewish People Policy Institute. So I wrote this year's chapter on how COVID is changing Jewish institutional life. And what I point out there is going back to that book is that a lot of those synagogues that seem to be, uh, I mean, time will tell, but the ones who seem to be doing it right and the ones who seem to be, you know, getting ahead of these changes, these are changes that were on their way already before COVID and COVID was just an accelerant. It was just a catalyst Catalyst. for for these events. And, um, you know, the ones who are successfully figuring this out really fast and, and making sure to give people value and connection um you know with the new reality that we have however long this will take those are the ones that are surviving and it has to do like you said you know the ones who weren't efficient right organizationally um the ones who didn't know how to be flexible enough or how to be nimble enough and those are the ones who sadly are going to fall by the wayside but uh, maybe that's an important element of, of of this time you know it's these kind of times that help us weed out the ones that weren't supposed to be there uh, that couldn't adapt and, and, you know, push forward the ones that are successfully adapting. You know, maybe we don't have to be so uh, sad about this. And also, I mean, to your, I think you were maybe getting at this. There are maybe places that should be combining forces yeah. that have resisted that. You know, like we're all, again, in our own kind of, you know, not, they're not narrow silos, but they're kind of fixed. And there could be so much more cross-pollination. That's something that I felt even reporting on my, for my book, My Jewish Year, or doing this series, um, talking to rabbis about God. It's like, why are we not talking? Why does it sort of take a, a journalist who's asking multiple voices to come together in one kind of place? Because they're not going to agree necessarily, but it should be happening more. I think that it would actually stimulate more engagement if you weren't just getting it from one place, which doesn't mean we don't want a Jewish home. I'm glad I have a Jewish home in Central Synagogue. I'm glad I know people and they know me. So I don't want to necessarily fling open the doors and and have no place, no home. Mm -hmm. But I do think that when it comes to some of this, everybody's trying to do it on their own, raising money on their own for the same project. Right. And not, you know, saying, figuring it out kind of how. Um, It's, yeah. It it is just very sad though that that a lot of people have to, uh, you know, I, I would be, I would feel like we aren't addressing the, you know, it wouldn't be right to, to, to leave out the fact that there's just been so many very capable and professional Jewish professionals. Sure. That people have, are going to lose their jobs. That have lost their jobs. Yeah. And I, and what you just said about maybe, you know, joining forces between certain organizations, maybe there's a way that some of these people could, well, could be involved in. You are Jay and, uh, and the, the, the reform movement and the conservative movement ended up uh, joining their, I think their logistical and kind of operational capabilities now. Yeah. That was a huge move. Abby, I work, uh, I'm, I'm in my, in my real I don't want to say real life. real life in real life <laughs> in, in, in non COVID life. I'm the, I'm the director of sales for a large uh, tourism company here in Israel that, that caters uh, largely to the organized Jewish world in, in, and specifically in the United States. And I was in New York in the second uh, half of February uh, on a sales trip. And I was meeting with people all over the city and it was really, I mean, I didn't know then as none of us knew then, but that was like, that was the end. That was right that was before 
stop being so dramatic. Uh, well, the end of what was and the end of, the end of what was. It's a break. Uh, and I went to a, a JCPA conference in DC and I, and I, you know, I went to you know, the JFNA offices in, you know, in, in downtown and, and, and it's like, I met with people who weeks later, like lost their jobs. And I would get these phone calls like, Oh, you met with so-and-so. Oh my God, she lost her job. You know, they downsized, they lost, you know, 30%, 40%, 50%. I'm just like, Holy crap. Like we have to reinvent now. We have to reinvent now. And I have no idea what these people are going to do that lost their jobs. Like, what are they going, you know, but, but it would be a shame if you can't, if the Jewish community lost those people that, that, dedicated so much of themselves you can't just keep going forward on inertia right you have to have like like what you were saying if you don't have this positive message you can't just keep going on right the holocaust anti-semitism or the inertia of right. it's an organization so we have to keep it going and, and you see so many jewish organizations and i don't want to name names because they're all really trying to do a good job um that they're all trying to figure out forget COVID. just name the acronym man <laughs> There's too many they're all trying to figure out what are they going to do in in the 21st century because you know the world's changed and they have an organization so how are we going to fund ourselves what's our what's our thing now um i, I want to take a, a turn on this uh, conversation because uh we could talk about current events for for hours i have a feeling but you've done some pretty amazing stuff um you still do i guess in in the interviews but you've also worked on on some amazing projects, 60 Minutes and, and on PBS um, and, and your book, uh, um, of Stars of David. Um, so I kind of want to go into into that world. Um, so who's, you know, in, in, I guess, recently, who's the most interesting, from your perspective, uh, well, maybe you'll get in trouble if you say one person's more interesting than the other, but who are some Who was of, the least interesting person? <laughs> the person you'd like, no, that was a mistake. What were some Don't of the that. Uh, interviewees that, that you've... Um, talked to interviewed recently that that really stand out yeah so i would say first samantha power who was you know absolutely incredible and she has this uh pretty recent autobiography which you know is so thick that it can put people off but it, it reads like a movie i can't recommend it more highly and part of why it's so interesting is first of all that even in her 20s she you know was choosing to and going about some you know projects and research and and travel that I would never have had the courage to do in terms of foreign policy and going into hotspots where her life was. She was in Rwanda, right? I mean, that was kind of how she made her name. Uh, She was in Rwanda. She was in obviously in Serbia. I mean, all those places, but, but also that she admitted her missteps Mm. times that she had essentially screwed up. And I feel like that's so refreshing and so rare for someone of, of, of such young success to basically really tell you in, in granular detail um, when she managed to piss off the entire Obama campaign to the point where she thought she was going to lose her job and did, you know, like mostly people whitewash their mistakes and why I think it's just, it's, and, and talking to her when I did, and she's obviously very polished and hugely accomplished. I felt like, you know, it's just rare to have some, a public figure be that human Mm. Um, and, uh, so she's somebody that sticks in my mind. I would also just say, you know, I interviewed the cast of Schtissel twice for those who have watched it. It just became a phenomenon, at least in New York and in a lot of America, this, this, you know, this, um, television series and watching the phenomenon we, we put, we posted that, uh, it happened at the Stryker Center at Temple Emanuel, which is, you know, it's like a, a massive cathedral because it, it, it seats 2,500 people. And we sold out in hours. We had to have a, add a, another night. 
And just like this is, you know, you know what the show is about. And it's all in Hebrew and, and Yiddish with subtitles. And it's a very quiet te- television series. Yeah. And it just said to me, it said a lot to me about kind of, you know, why, why did this take off? What is the connection that American Jews feel with, you know, the Haredi community that is so alien to so many of us? Yeah, what, why, why is there that connection? That was a mess. <laughs> what? Why, why is there that connection? Um, um, in real life, in real life, I mean, secular Israelis, but definitely American Jews, most of whom are reform or conservative. In real life, it's a clash. It's a really visceral clash on every yeah. single level with the ultra-Orthodox community. And yet this show, which I, I have not seen. Um, Dude. That's a Shonda. What? I, I, okay, I'm not going to get into what shows I make the small amount of time for, but it's not that. Um, okay. but, but I know what it's about. Um, but why do you think there is that magnetic connection to something that in real life is the opposite of that? Yeah. I think, first of all, because it's the opposite of that, because it's so alien, there was a kind of prurient desire to just get a window inside the life and understand it. And then it was very relatable. It was extremely human. It was, it was about family. It was about, you know, tensions and traditions and mothers and sons or mothers and, and daughters and all of those things. And um, the characters were, you know, I, I can't explain. They kind of got under your skin in a way that I think none of us anticipated. Um, but it's, it's pretty surreal to think that that's our people when you feel so distant. Hmm. But we are such a tiny population of Jews and that we could be at such opposite ends of the spectrum of how we live our lives and what we eat and what we do and how we work and, you know, and how we get married and how we have sex and all of it. And obviously we saw this tenfold in, in this summer with the Netflix phenomenon of unorthodox, but I just think there was a sense of like, I want to understand who I'm related to Mm. Um, in a way I, I never have. And I think it's affected the way people view the Haredi, even though, I mean, on New York City streets, even though we're never going to be in the same room together very often. Uh, I just think there's more compassion now, even if we disagree on a lot. That's interesting. Um, did you find that the cast, who's not ultra-Orthodox, right? Right, not at all. None of them. Okay. How were they able to relate yeah, how are they able to open this window up to yeah. to what is primarily a not orthodox crowd? Yeah, and it was not that they were kind of almost um, assertively secular when I interviewed them. Like, don't assume I'm not a good actor. I'm a good actor. Like, there, there was basically like I did my job, I did my research, and these people are are human like anyone else. But it wasn't that they said, you know, all these people in the audience wanted to know if it changed their Judaism, if they connected more, if they understood more. Um, That wasn't the answer that they wanted to give, nor did they give it. And when I say it was messy, it was because they're Israelis. And so they were late and they were arguing and they were wonderful. But, you know, somebody wanted, you know, a glass of vodka backstage. Someone needed a cigarette before we went on. It was very, it was not the, my usual green room kind <laughs> of warm up at all. It was like, where's the panel? Panel's <laughs> <laughs> having a cigarette, <laughs> taking a shot. What are some of the other panels or guests that, that stand out in your mind? Yeah, um, I'm trying to think of like who is more recent uh, that I did. 
in the, meantime, they're, they're in the all, meantime, I'm going to ask about Malcolm Gladwell because I'm a huge, huge Malcolm Gladwell fan. Oh, he's fantastic. Fanboy. He so, yeah, he's great. He was wonderful. Um, I interviewed Roxane Gay, who writes for the New York Times, very kind of agitational, but great writer. Um, I think that was in the last two years. I interviewed Alan Cumming. I don't know if any of you know him as an actor. Um, was that? He, was, uh, he was in uh, Cabaret on Broadway, and then he was in... Um, what was it? The Good Wife. I don't know if any of you guys watch that. Tele- well, Dan doesn't watch television. I watch television. Um, have time. I watch shows bad. like The Good Wife. The thing is, I watch bad television. That's Madeline I- Albright. Madeline Albright was a force, and and she was funny, which I didn't expect her to be. Um, so my that mom, was. My was mom funny. ran into Madeline Albright in Aspen, and uh, it was in 2016, right when Trump got elected. It was before he became president, and she ran into her at. Uh, it was probably Aspen Ideas Festival or something. Mm. And she asked her, she was like, Secretary Albright, you know, what, you know, uh, what's going to happen or something like that. And, and, and I think she tells the story that her response was, it's going to get bad. Um, wow. And, it, and it's going to get bad. And then, you know, it'll get better one day. But, it, you know, don't don't think. That, I think my mom was expecting her to be like, with, with all due respect, it'll be OK. America will persevere. No, she was with, like, with all due respect to the brilliant mind of Madeleine Albright. I think a lot of people could have given that answer. Of course, right. of course. Her, book, her book was about fascism, so she yeah. was also really, you know, right. well schooled in how things can go wrong. Does she? Does she? Uh, she considers herself Jewish, right? I don't. She definitely does. I don't think she's an observant Jew, but I think when and and there's controversy about whether she was honest about when she learned that she was a Jew. Um, I think she hid that when she was in office. Uh, right. Well, it's a question of whether she hid it or conf- or she can she can not confess it, but related the the revelation as soon as it happened or more, much after the fact. Hmm. But one of the interviews I do remember now that we're talking is that I interviewed Tom Friedman, the columnist from the Times, with Danny Gordis, oh, and. Nice. and and that was, I thought, going to be a lot, a lot more kind of, it was really lively, but it wasn't as contentious as I expected it to be um, with the two of them. It was centered around Danny's more recent, most recent book. Um, but, but just right. having them both, I'm sorry. His book on nationalism, right? His defense of nationalism. Right. right. Yeah. But just, you know, again, because I think the Israel conversation is so stagnated in America, it was just interesting to sit with two people who, you know, kind of are braver uh, for better and for worse, but they're they're braver about taking it on. I actually just finished reading Gordis's book on U.S.-Israel relations, and uh, mm. it was very well done. It was one of those where I I wish I would have written it. Like it was it was uh, I'm, I'm going to recommend it. We got to get him on the show. We recommend it to anyone who wants to get a much better understanding of why we're having the disagreements. That we're having. I mean, that was the panel that we. That's where we met, right? We met on a panel on the kind of tensions in the U.S.-Israel. What tensions? Uh, what tensions? What tensions? Come exactly. On, no tensions. <laughs> we're all one big happy family. Remember? Right. 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 Yeah. So, how long uh, were you on sixty minutes? Because that's that's a legendary I show. For six years. How long? Sorry. Six years. Six years. And it was an incredible education, and I was you know, kind of went all over the world. And I, I learned at the at the knee of some great producers. And these correspondents were, you know, they're, they're kind of in my DNA now in terms of their journalistic values and demands. And, and they were, you know, incredibly uh, loving in their way, although extremely tough. 60 Minutes, people would describe it not as a family. 
It was not like the campaign. <laughs> um, it was kind of dog eat dog. You're only as good as your last story. And everybody wanted the executive producer, Don Hewitt. Like he was king. He was, you know, uh, the, the God figure at 60 Minutes. He's sadly gone. But, you know, it was, it was a place where you had no fact checkers. So you had 20 million people who were going to watch your reporting for 12 minutes. You had better get it right. And there was that was a kind of discipline and pressure that was kind of an incredible uh, petri dish in which to grow up. It's amazing because I mean, still today, uh, and, and actually, even though I'm over here, we we do we actually get 60 minutes on Israeli TV. Right. We do um, once a week, and I try to get their pod. They they turn their show into a podcast, and I still try to watch it. It it's really says something about about that institution it's amazing that you were part of it and and like you said doggy dog and you managed to be there for six years um that you know they're they're really putting forth good stuff consistently week and week uh ed bradley and mike wallace giants of of journalism right that you were saying that it's turned into a podcast one of the things that don hewitt used to say and i'm sure you've discovered this as as podcast hosts is that a story is only successful if it sound if you can listen as much as watch it. It cannot be dependent just on great pictures. There should be great film yep. if you can get it. But it really was so much about storytelling, and that was drummed into us. Like right. if this doesn't sound as riveting for twelve minutes as it is to see, then you have failed. So, what are some of the you know I don't want to say biggest, but some of the more memorable stories that that you worked on and. and for those of us, uh, including myself, who aren't super familiar with the world of television broadcast journalism, what does a producer do? On, uh, yeah, that's a good question. So particularly at 60 Minutes, the way it worked was that each correspondent, and there were five at the time I was there, each correspondent has their own team, and the teams are competing for stories. So mm-hmm. basically something happens in the world, and you would write a blue sheet is what it was called, which is essentially you submit your story idea, and you try to be there first just to the executive producer and the senior producer so that they are saying, yes, they're kind of green lighting your blue sheet ahead of others. And sometimes there were times where they had two blue sheets and you had to kind of say, well, I have the main character, so I should be able to to get the story. So first there was that internal kind of competing, being as fast as you could, as thorough as you could. Um, But also you want to be inventive. You didn't want to just do, you know, because there's the the Arab Spring, you're going to do the Arab Spring. I mean, there's a producer who's going to do the Arab Spring. Um, that I wasn't that kind of producer, but when I was an associate producer, which is how I started, I did a lot of those international stories. And, and basically what you do is that you're researching the story fully before the correspondent ever gets there and you're setting up the, the interview subjects. So you want to be able to find the people who are going to tell that story as clearly and as, um, kind of rivetingly as possible because you're going to have a very little amount of time to cover a lot of ground. And for instance, after the Rwanda massacres, where the Hutus slaughtered the Tutsis, it was, it was absolutely, I think, one of the bloodiest, most disconcerting genocides yeah. um, that we've seen. And the word genocide does apply. It was in 1994. Um, you know, to go over there ahead of time with the producer, I was working with George Kreil, who's sadly gone, and have him say to me, take this fixer, you get a, you're with a fixer, someone who speaks the language and you can get around and go find refugees who Ed is going to be able to talk to when he arrives. And you would go into, I went into Zoma, to Goma Zaire and which is where, and they were, you know, it's a tent community of hundreds of thousands of people who have been displaced overnight and to try to find the people who are going to be able to describe the 
story, you know, that, that was one of the most memorable things I've ever done. First of all, just to be as fast as you needed to be and also as fearless because people had just been macheted a few weeks earlier. So, you know, that was, um, and you know, then there was like, I worked on a profile of Candace Bergen that's on the other um, end of the spectrum that ended up being extremely moving and powerful because uh, she grew up in Hollywood as a child of Hollywood. Her father was a famous ventriloquist and just like Edward, Edward Bergen, no, no one remembers now, but he had this puppet um, that was famous. And, you know, just talking to somebody who had literally never known anything but the spotlight. She was also very beautiful. And that wasn't oppressive, but it, it sort of charted a course for her that was very limiting. And to be able to go to her house in, in France that she shared with Louis Malle, the, uh, the filmmaker, and, you know, just kind of say, yeah, we're, we're coming to your house and I'm getting Mike Wallace out here and we're going to eat cassoulet and sit for this interview. You know, it just took you into these worlds that, that I miss. And it was only when I started to have children and realized I couldn't do both jobs well <laughs> that um, I decided to go into print journalism. But 60 Minutes is incredible in its rigor and its, um, in its variety. And that's why I think it's, it has stood the test of time. Is there a story that you feel changed you? Mm. That, I mean, because, you know, you know how it is as a writer now. I can, I can relate as being a writer. I've never done these kind of things. But you, yeah. when you spend enough time on a subject, you connect, yeah. it, right? It becomes a part of you, um, yeah. even if you're only describing it. Um, yeah. So of all the things um, that, that you covered and researched, yeah. and, and what, what do you think influenced you or changed you uh, the most? I think one of the ones is very, it was very prescient or it's very current now with the pandemic, which is that I covered what was called the second wave of HIV infection. Mm. And when I interviewed um, many in the homosexual community who described a fatigue with the limitations of what was required to be safe uh, in terms of that pandemic, it was just mind boggling to me at the time. I couldn't understand why you would kind of get exhausted by the things that kept you safe um, because they, there had been a sort of a freer, freer love kind of habits that had to change. And it changed the culture of the Jewish community. I'm, I'm sorry, the gay community. That was a phrase, strange of the gay community in a way that was the much more Jewish community also. <laughs> and many Jew, many gay Jews um, that was much more kind of seismic as somebody who's, who's not in that community than I had understood before. And I, I think in a way, in retrospect, I didn't absorb how much culturally that was a tell. That was a tell sign of like how we can only do so sometimes as a community, it takes a lot to do the right thing, even when it's saving your life. And I'm finding that right now, whether it's masks or social distancing like you kind of say, why is this so hard? And then you realize because it's really hard after a certain point. Yeah. After a certain point, I totally, I totally get it. And and not to say that what the current situation uh, we're going through is, is, you know, completely similar to the AIDS pandemic, because it's obviously not, you know, we all feel that fatigue and it's, you know, I, I myself at times find it difficult to adhere to the strict discipline as I'm sure, I'm sure we all do, but we just have to continue to persevere because this is, this is the way that it is. Well, listen, Abby, I, I understand and we understand that uh, that your time is very precious and we thank you very, very much for being here. So before we conclude, I just have one last question, which is with, with everything that's going on in the world, with the incredible challenges we're facing and with all of the impact and implications that that's had on the Jewish world, 
are you optimistic? Do you feel like we're going to be okay? And, uh, and what are your overall thoughts about where we're going? You know, I'm going to be a little bit anti-Jewish here and say that I'm entirely optimistic about the next chapter. And that's just because there always has been one in our tradition and our story. And, you know, that's not a cliche or it's a cliche for a reason, because we always come back stronger and more creative and more connected. And I think in a way more in touch with what ultimately matters when things are stripped away, which is our tradition, our mandate to help the person in trouble and each other. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm a believer that there is a better day ahead. Love that answer. Thank you. That's terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a true pleasure speaking with you. Two hours went by in a flash, and I'm sure we could easily spend another few hours taking this conversation to all sorts of uh, fascinating places. But uh, we know you have to go. Uh, so Abigail Pogrebin, award-winning author and journalist, all-around badass, thank you so much for taking the time to be on our show. Thank you both again for inviting me on and taking this time. And I hope I get to see you on the other side. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Fetherman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com. And feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.